At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. My dad was in construction and uh, my mother worked as a waitress. We didn't really have much money. Uh, the entertainment for us was to uh, go to the beaches down near the Skyway and do a little wade fishing, go to the piers. Uh, fish off the piers, we fished off the catwalks at the Gandhi Bridge, the catwalks at John's Pass, the jetty. And just for me versus my siblings, it, uh, fishing was an escape. It was an escape from, you know, the drudgery of the everyday. We didn't get to do as much as the other kids got to do. And I was a big kid, so I did get to play sports. So I, I was a popular kid because I was a good athlete. But for me, fishing was everything. It was my time. I, if I, I buried my fishing rod as a middle schooler at my bus stop in a, in a Brazilian pepper bush so I could bass <laughs> fish before school, then come back after school, get dropped off by the bus, then uncover it and then bass fish again, then go home. And so fishing was always an obsession. It was like fishing took my mind off all the other troubles that I thought I was having at that age. You know, for kids now, they have a lot more anxiety issues. You ought to go out fishing is what you ought to do. This is Captain C.A. Richardson, and this is Tom Rowland's podcast. This is episode number 27 with C.A. Richardson. C.A. Richardson is an awesome dude. He has a show, very popular show called Flats Class. And C.A. Richardson is really uh, a very talented teacher. He, he does it with a patient approach, non-intimidating, and his fan base is super loyal. And there's a reason why, because the guy just does a really good job. I'm proud to know him, and I'm proud to uh, bring this podcast to you because I think you're really going to like it. I think you're really going to like it. The guy's a, a super pro all around. All I had to do was turn turn on the uh, turn on the recorder and hit record, and CA basically did the rest. I don't really have to ask a lot of questions with CA because he is a true professional. He let us in on a lot of a lot of things that that got him to where he is today, and uh, also a little glimpse into the future, a little glimpse into the future of CA Richardson. Uh, so I think you're going to really enjoy that. C.A. Richardson is someone who uh, constantly and consistently pops up on my email as I put out this address, podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. Podcast at saltwaterexperience.com is a place where you can get directly to me with suggestions, not only of just who you would like me to interview, but also what you would like for me to ask them. Is there something about one of these guys that you don't know that you, that you would like to know? Put it in there, and uh, I'll try to track them down and try to find out for you. C.A. Richardson is probably one of the most requested guests that we've had, and so it's my pleasure to bring him to you on this episode. This episode is brought to you by Waypoint TV. Waypoint TV is a great place for you to go and watch free outdoor content, hunting and fishing, free. Absolutely free. All you got to do is watch one little commercial. You can see the entire episode. Most producers are putting all of their content up there. We even have some uh, people right now that are putting content up there that is exclusive to Waypoint, which I think is super cool. So go to Waypoint and see all the new content on the top bar that's being promoted. And uh, you can do that as easily as typing in 
waypointtv.com in your browser. You can also go and get it on the App Store for your phone, for your tablet, for your Roku, Apple TV, Amazon Fire, even some Play, uh, you know, uh, game systems. Lots and lots of places, pretty much everywhere. So you can watch your favorite content anywhere, anytime, anywhere you want. So, Waypoint TV. I think you're going to really like it. Now, C.A. Richardson, coming your way right now. C.A. Richardson, sitting down. Finally, we've been trying to do this for how long? A couple of months now. I know, I know. I really appreciate you sitting down with me. You know, we started getting to know one another when we were both fishing in the IFA tournaments, as I remember. Oh, boy, that was a long time ago. <laughs> seemed like forever that I was in competitive fishing. And since then, th- so many things have changed. Yeah. You know, television's blown up. Uh, Flats class the brand as far as being a how-to entity and in most people's light tackle, I guess, adventures has become played a bigger role with them as far as me teaching them yeah, how to fish. You've, you've really, you've really come into your own as an instructor. In, in my opinion, just looking from the outside, that's, that's what it seems like you've really, you've really found your niche as, as a true instructor with a, on a, on a big stage with a very personal approach. Yeah, that, that's always been the goal at Flats Class. The goal was to, to develop a charter business at first Yeah, where all the customer base was going to want to throw either light tackle, plastic, and plugs, or we were going to throw fly. Did not want to be the everyday hotel guide, you know, throwing shiners. Not that there's anything wrong with it. Right. Just I just wanted to specialize in one t- style of fishing that I was suited for, and I felt like I could create a value for these folks. So I started the classes off very small, a dozen people maybe in a class at a very small local tackle retailer, and then it just grew from there. I never, never in my wildest dreams thought it would eventually grow into a television show, mm-hmm. and now the opportunity to do online courses with Salt Strong, it's just, it's really superseded every expectation that I ever had. But to come from such humble beginnings, just with the idea of, I'm going to teach clients how to fish, so they only want to fish with me. Right. And that way I can have a regular clientele without always trying to develop new client. And that just, that simple mission turned into what it has today. Here we are going into season 13 with Flats Class, and I'm an everyday charter guide. I'm getting a little older now, so I don't <laughs> want to do it every day anymore. But I'm still doing it every day. But the future will probably, for me, will likely spend more time doing the schools and personal appearances and more of the online how-to courses. That way I can help people in Texas. I can help people in the Northeast. I can, I can be places that I could never be physically in as many places in the same year. So it's gonna, I think it'll be a big benefit. And my partnership with Salt Strong is going to help facilitate that. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, fr- I'm familiar and friendly with those guys as well. And they have talked to me about doing um, those courses too. And, uh, I just haven't, we just haven't been able to, to do it, but what's your experience? It's really good. There's lots of feedback. It requires some time because you've Mm -hmm. got to interact with the questions that are coming through. So it does take a little bit of time, but I'm the guy that works 14 hours a day, just like you do. So I'm on the water. I come home, I look at some of those questions and then, and some of them are easy to answer and many of them are redundant, but you know, you're helping people and they appreciate it. And it, 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 provides a connection to me. Whether we sell a thousand of the courses or if we only sell 500 or 300, whatever, it is a value and it's content for, for Salt Strong overall. And it's fun to do the courses. The, the shooting of the course for me is the most fun because we do it over mm-hmm. two or three days. It's, it's a break from the normal day-to-day guiding. Yeah. How is it different from your television show shooting? It's a lot different because it's in very digestible bites, three to six minutes of video showing one particular way to do something. And that way, the client that buys that course uh, is not saddled with a talking head or watching some video that he may not, he may lose interest in if he had to watch it any longer mm-hmm. than that. So those little digestible bites, you know, a, a course may encompass 50 to 75 videos and they can watch it at their leisure. They can watch it in their pajamas 
right here at the coffee table. Yeah. It doesn't matter. You don't have to go to a live class. A lot of people would prefer a live class, but the online courses, just like many of the things that we experience today, are it's just way too convenient. Everyone's looking at their phones or looking at their tablets. It's a great way to learn stuff. Uh, YouTube has changed the way we all do things. Um, you, you can research a bait, you can research a knot, and you learn how to do them. Where before, if you didn't spend time with a fishing guide or you didn't go to a tackle store where there was a really experienced salt guy there, you had no idea how to do this stuff. And right. now everyone can learn how to do it. Yeah, and, and the, the, the thing that I like about it is it, it, what you're doing there and what Salt Strong is doing is that you only have so much time. You can only be in so many places at the same time. One, right? So if you choose to go down to the mom and pop tackle shop and have a very personal seminar with 10 to 50 people, right? then 10 to 50 people get to take advantage of that knowledge, get to take advantage of that opportunity, and then it disappears and it's gone. And it's very important to those 10 to 50 people. But what you're doing now is you're taking that same hour of your very valuable time and you are making it available to far more people. And forever. Right. It's, it's always going to live right, right. there. So there, it, it's going to be used over and over and over again. And then we can, we can add to it. As new techniques come up, as new baits are are brought to market, we can we can add them to the class. So it's 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 the type of education that keeps on giving yeah. years down the line. That's great. So how do how does somebody find that? How does somebody take part in that course? The the, the best way to really get involved with Salt Strong is you should go to the website saltstrong.com and just look at all the free information that you get. There's all kinds of tips and fishing reports and and opportunity there to product comparisons power pro versus versus spider wire and fluorocarbon versus mono leaders mm-hmm. and it's it's an interesting uh, how much information uh, the Simons boys give away for free but there's another subscription layer underneath that and if you pay for that subscription layer then you get a lot of the tips that I'm teaching through the course mm-hmm. without actually buying the course mm-hmm. And then it's up to you. You'll have a special price to buy those fishing courses. So you may be able to buy the course for 25% less than someone that's not a member. Wow. But I almost like to liken it to Amazon Prime. Mm. If you you spend a little bit of money to be a subscriber and be part of their, their crew, uh, be part of the Insider Club, the fishing club itself, it will actually pay you back. You'll make all that money back in just a few just a month or two. I mean, you'll get all the money back. How are you getting it back? You're getting it back with discounts on product. Okay. You're getting it back with um, the discounts on the on the the actual courses itself, and the fact that how are you going to obtain this much information on your own when they've consolidated it all and found it for you? You ask a question. Hey, I want to learn more about kayaking in the Indian River. Mm-hmm. Well, they've got a guy that kayaks in the Indian River, so they ask him the question for you, and they're answering the questions real time right now. You're not waiting till next week's episode. You're not going to wait until Flats class comes back on second quarter of 2019. You're going to find out about it today, mm-hmm. That's That's super cool. And, you know, when, when you're a professional fishing guide like you and I are and have spent a tremendous amount of time there, I look, I look back at certain years that were really instrumental in in opening doors of knowledge to me right and it's it's fishing every single day not not learning anything for the majority of those days and then one day you just happen upon a place at at, at the right tide you've never been there before something happened maybe the weather maybe there's lightning striking over here where you intend to go and you it you change, actually choose to course, take shelter yeah. over here right and lo and behold there is what you've been looking for your entire life, right? It just happens, and somehow you you come you open up this door of knowledge, and that may take three hundred and sixty five days. It may take five years. It may take fifteen years. It may take whatever. But you are out there putting in a tremendous amount of time to gain this one little piece of knowledge that helps you stitch together all of the rest of your your knowledge, right? Your, your experience. That, yeah, so that you've, ga- you've gained some knowledge in Louisiana, you've gained some knowledge in the Keys, you've gained some knowledge over in, in Mosquito Lagoon, and you learn this one thing and you, and you realize how all of these things are connected somehow. For the regular individual that fishes on weekends, okay, so there's 52 weekends in a year, of those weekends, the weather's not going to be conducive for fishing a lot of the time. 
So now you back it down to 30 weekends a year. Some of those fall on Christmas and Thanksgiving and family vacation. Now it's now it's 25 weekends a year. And then, so you have, let's just say it's between 20 to 25 weekends a year for a super avid fisherman, fisherman right? And I think, okay, well, 20 to 25 weekends a year, that sounds like a lot of time, but really that's only 52 days. That's it. That's a little bit more, that's, that's less than a professional fishing guide is fishing in two months. That's right. Right? So... And in two months, maybe you learn something. There's dry, there are dry stretches in a fishing guide's life where in two months, you really don't learn much. And then you may have two months where you learn 10 years worth of, of, of things. But what I'm trying to get around to is that for the regular guy, you've got 50 days of fishing per year, and that is a super avid person. Right. So it's somewhere between 15 and 30 days of fishing. You're trying to get better. That is not much time. So to, to have someone like yourself and a resource like that available, that's really amazing. And, and you're going to gain years worth, I mean, 10 years worth of knowledge in a small course when you look at it like that, when you really break the time down and, and I mean, a lot of people say, I fish all the time. Well, they're thinking about fishing all the time. They're reading about fishing. They're watching fishing. But the actual amount of time out there on the boat. Isn't that much. It's not. It seems like it. And, and your wife will tell you that your gas bill looks like it. But That's right. That's right. <laughs> or, or complain about how little time you spend with her and, and how much time you spend on that boat of yours. But the, re- the reality of it, of a lot of the weekend warrior anglers fall into a perpetual habit of fishing the same glory hole zone exactly. over and over again. Because you're taking your brother-in-law that you've talked about, oh, you've got to come down here and see me. And so you're trying to show him a really good time. You're trying to get him into fishing, or maybe it's your son or your daughter, or, you know, they're, the guy from work or something that you've talked about. So you want to take him right to the meat. Well, the meat is what you did last weekend, which now the tides are all different. That's you should right. do that two weeks away. Because but that's your, your, hit, com- your confidence spot. Yeah, that's your confidence spot. And then you kind of think, well, I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to explore out. But that guy gets tired, and it's ready to go home. So now you've done the same thing five weeks in a row. You've learned nothing, really. Nothing. And, and there's certain rules in fishing that hold true no matter where you fish, whether it be the signatures that you see in nature that tell you whether fish are there or not, you know, the birds, the bait fish activity water temperature, which way the current is moving across. There's all kinds of little signatures that will clue you in if you're doing the right thing. And experience tells you over time which ones that you can line up that'll make fishing at least okay, at least average. Because I always like to break things into thirds. You know, you look at a tide calendar or moon calendar, you're going to notice that there's, in a 30-day period, there's probably going to be 10 days that the fishing is terrible. I mean, they are not in your favor because of slow tides, bad moons, or bad weather. Yeah. And then there's going to be 10 pedestrian days where you're going to work at it, and you're going to catch a few fish, but you're not setting the world on fire. They're, they're just days that things worked out. And then there are maybe 10, if you're lucky, of that month that are the right tide. They mm-hmm. are the good weather. Mm-hmm. So, but your weekends may not fall in those windows. You're only going to get one weekend that falls in that yeah. window. And, and likely the other stuff is going to be two thirds of the time where it's a, it's a bigger struggle. And the, and the greatest thing that you possess is the confidence of knowing that you can cover water and catch fish. So when, when I teach flats class, we use on the show, we use a laundry list of baits and we're always, it seems like we're always successful with them because I'm always fishing with very qualified people and we're pulling up to fish and I've got, you know, 30 plus years of experience throwing artificial baits and that's all I do. But when you're, when you're the average everyday Joe that's going out there to find fish and I'm guiding you, I literally just pull out four or five lures mm-hmm. and go, use these four or five lures, gain a lot of confidence in these four or five lures and understand he who makes the most presentations usually catches fish. You don't have to finesse every fish. In fact, if you have to finesse a fish, it's hard to catch. Yeah. So let's just fish for the fish that we can catch readily. And that's it. Yeah. Let's fish as fast as we can. So lures like paddle tail baits and bucktail jigs and, and spoons and fast twitch um, suspending plugs that you can move quickly through the water and topwater plugs. These are all lures that you can make long casts with. And you're basically almost straight crank retrieve back to the boat or you're working them in a manner where they, they get back quickly. Mm-hmm. 
And if, if you're the angler on the weekend that makes, you know, you put your eight hours of fishing in and you make 750 to a thousand casts because you're, you're blowing down, down the flat, making lots of casts. And the other guy's fishing, let's say a shrimp imitator or a tube jig or something like that. And he's only going to make maybe if he's lucky, a third of the number of casts. Well, he better be pretty good finesse fisherman to catch more fish than you. Cause you're going to cover more water and you're going to, you're going to, you're literally making sales calls to fish and yeah. there's going to be more answers. There's going to be more pickups. If you make a thousand casts, it's not pretty fishing sometimes, but it's the, it's the easiest way to get the right result. Yeah. And when we tournament fished, I don't know how you and Rich did it on the boat, but the way that, that I would fit, I would approach most areas is if I really practiced well in an area and understood the fish, I'd be willing to take a chance on maybe finessing the A spot for a while. Yeah. But if we had inclement weather, which is always the case when they call a tournament, where all of a sudden practice was perfect, now we're fishing in 30-mile-an-hour winds, it's dark, and <laughs> yeah, well. the way it always works out, I disregarded that and went straight to, we're power fishing. Yeah. And if two guys are power fishing, you're going to catch your share of fish. That's just the way it is. So I would say 80% of the time when we fish tournaments, all I cared about was power fishing because I knew power fishing consistence wise would catch the most fish so when a client gets on my boat and they're expecting hey you're going to teach me how to throw this little crab you're going to teach me how to do all that i was like no we're going to catch fish today doing this a paddle tail a simple paddle tail on an eighth to three sixteenths maybe even a quarter ounce jig head depending upon the depth of the water is what we're going to use and you're going to get very proficient at this we're going to pick a dark color and a light color and see which one works the best and then and then pick up the signs in the water because no matter what estuary you go to, there's always small three-inch bait fish. You're going you're gonna to catch fish. If those aren't obvious, then we'll pick a color that matches the bottom, and we'll work the bait tighter to the bottom, and we'll try to imitate a crustacean, a, crusta- a crustacean pattern or something like that. But those are the things that allow us to catch more fish and be more consistent. Mm-hmm. It's just simple rules. Yeah. So if you're, the, if you're the guy that only gets 15 days on the water, you're probably much better off you know, power fishing those days, if you're artificial angler or interested in artificial fishing, then you are ever picking these little finesse type baits that look so cool and so real and all the YouTube right. videos. Yeah. It's interesting that, that you're talking about, about that because, and, and wondering what we did on the boat, because we came from the keys and basically didn't cast at a fish unless we saw a fish. That's right. Same right? fish. So, and, and we're good at it. You know, like most of the Florida Keys guys are. You have to be good at it because that's what you, that's kind of the style of fishing. We didn't learn about the power fishing, as you're calling it, for quite some time. And when we went to Texas, we're trying to do what we do best and having zero luck, right? And so we, we come across this, this drifting, throwing spoons and, uh, keeping the spoon just above the, above the grass and that was the only way we could really catch any fish but you're covering a tremendous amount of water and it was very similar to how we barracuda fish in the florida keys in the winter times where the further you can throw it the faster you can reel it in and the more water you cover the more you're going to catch and so once i kind of made that connection like okay there are other ways to catch redfish and redfish live in other water besides where their eyeballs show th- show over That's the right. over the the top of the water we got a lot better well I don't know that we got better. We got more consistent, and we got we got in a situation to where we could we could uh, perform or produce despite the weather. That's right. And that was monumental for us in areas like Texas, where the water is muddy. Areas like Louisiana, where there is just the the fish population is just so good that there are basically fish everywhere that you might think there's a fish. There's probably a fish. It That's might right. not be the right size. That's right. But there's probably a fish there. But it it really took us a while. Our our initial uh, entrance to the 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 competitive redfish world, luckily for us, was in uh, Mosquito Lagoon, and we got second Sim- place. S- similar to what you fish in the Keys. Yeah, it, it, Clear, we got second water. place. We just rode around and looked until we found what we were looking for. And even could just look over there and go, those are all dinks. Let's keep moving on, you know, or those look way too big. Let's catch one and see, maybe catch two or three and see, but really making very few casts. But that comes from a tremendous amount of 
of sight fishing. That's Not right. everybody does that, right? Um, but that's uh, that that tournament world. How much of what you're what you're doing, what you're talking about, was learned and earned in the tournaments, moving outside of your little comfort zone and moving into all the different areas where we where we fished and and it really. You know, they say that good judgment comes from experience, hmm. and experience comes from bad judgment. <laughs> I so, like that. I don't know if I've ever heard it said exactly so, like that. So the, I would be remiss to say that a lot of the launching pad for some of the stuff that I've developed over the years did not come from tournament fishing. Tournament fishing to me is, is sort of just shotgun fishing. It's, it's, it's not the fishing that I prefer. I prefer sight fishing. Versus in, a fish and making a presentation and the and the real thrill is is watching the reaction of the fish to the lure whether he tracks it or he crushes it right there or or he he comes off it and says nah that's not it and makes you think what do i got to do different on the next presentation the next time i see one Mm. so i love that style of fishing but the red fishing in areas that were like you say outside my comfort zone it wasn't clear water like I have in West Central Florida with tides that were easy to figure out. You know, now I'm going to places like Mosquito Lagoon where there is no tide, <laughs> or I'm going to places like Jacksonville, Florida where there's four to five feet of tide, or all the way up to Moorhead City, North Carolina where the water moves so fast, certain lures lose their action. Uh, Texas where you have the dirty water where you have to look for muds and slicks and 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 understand bird activity and 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 how fish move along there and and the deeper fish that we would target sometimes with big lip crankbaits. I mean, there were so many things to learn, and a lot of those got me thinking. You know, this would work for snook mm, in yeah. West Central Florida. Eh, these are baits that I throw for tarpon, yet they're catching redfish. I wonder if some of these other redfish baits would catch tarpon. Yeah, you know, like turbo cross. They catch tarpon. Yeah. yeah I, I wouldn't have jerk sheds. They catch tarpon. So it was, it, 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 in my mind is always working on the next idea. How, how can you fool a fish? And the way I always look at it is what does the fish see? I don't look at it from me throwing to a spot. I always look at it as what does the bait look like when it enters the water and how it reacts with the environment. And when the fish gets behind it, what does it actually see? Because so many people worry about leader length and this and that. And, oh, I got to tie this knot. The bottom line is the fish that eats the lure most of the time is the fish that slides in behind the back of the bait. And all he sees is the back of the bait. Sometimes the color doesn't even matter. We think the color matters. Mm-hmm. But sometimes the color doesn't even matter. So when you start looking at it, what does the fish want? What's his spatial awareness? It, it does make you think of all those techniques that you learned in all these places from Texas to the, you know, the North Carolina, Virginia border. What, you learned all these things and you learn what baits negotiate, what part, types of environment the easiest. I do incorporate that now quite a bit. I mean, I'll always probably be known as one of those redfish guys. But it's my least favorite fish to catch. I'd much rather catch big sea trout. I love catching mm. big sea trout. I love catching tarp. Um, when I grew up, all I cared about catching was snook. That's what my father took me to do. So I, we just went snook fishing. Snook fishing was the bomb. Red fishing was just one of those fish I just really didn't care about until those tournaments came yeah. around. And when those yeah. tournaments came well, around, I someone said, you know, you ca- you catch a lot of fish. You ought to consider doing this this, this redfish stuff for the governor's cup uh, that's coming up. And I'm like, redfish? Catch those things by accident all the time. I don't even, I'm not even trying to catch them and I mm-hmm. catch them. And once, once I started realizing, I was like, well, I'm pretty good at this. And artificials was my thing. It was always my thing. Even as a boy, my dad would fish with bait. He'd have me help catch bait. We'd get out there on a flat and he'd wade one way and I'd wade another. And I would just pull out a Bagley's finger mullet. I would pull out a, a, a trout tout. I'd pull out anything that I could see on Bob Cobb Bassmasters or Bill Dance television or throwing just about anything that Kurt Gowdy and yeah. he fished once in Weedon Island where I lived with Scott Brantley throwing mirror lures. And that's all I would throw. And there were, there were days when he would outfish me, you know, when the fish were concentrated. But there were many days when the fish are not where they're supposed to be, where they're very spread out, that I would be able to outfish him as a boy. Yeah. And I real and I got confidence in it. Mm-hmm. And and then it was like tying a lure on was like someone else tying a live mullet on or a 
a live pilchard on. They they knew they were going to catch a fish, and I knew if I tied a mirror lure on, I was going to catch a fish. Yeah. And once that's, you get to that level, it's you're, you're that's interesting because when you were talking about uh, how the fish comes in behind the lure and and is seeing seeing the way the lures reacting from behind it and I'm, I'm listening to you talk and a lot of it has to do with confidence and i'm I, at times you know when you are really fishing hard it almost feels like occasionally to me anyway and i'm wondering if it feels the same way to you that you can will a fish to bite i believe i believe all good fishermen think they can do that yeah. they can make a fish bite a lure they can't. Not be, that maybe that you don't even see. I mean, when you can see the fish, and and you're obviously that's when you're actually using your skills and 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 moving that bait it. in a way that that you're watching the fish, you're seeing the reaction out of it, you're seeing the body language of the fish. When you pull it fast, he speeds up. When you drop it slow, he gets disinterested, or vice versa. And then you you just do more of that, and that re, that it gets bite, the reaction. Right? But I'm talking about a lot of this blind fishing you're talking about, where you're just there and you're like. You, you can sometimes I will imagine that the fish is behind the bait, and sure enough, it's there, and it happens, and and you get the bite. And I'm wondering if you ever feel not not necessarily like telepathic powers towards a no, fish, but there is you, a zen like feeling I think with guys that fish a lot. Yeah. Guys that fish a lot have a flow chart in their head, and when they've been doing something for a certain period of time in an area that they're fishing and they realize it isn't working, they subconsciously automatically change the speed or tempo of the retrieve or they change a color, mm -hmm. or instead of swimming the bait, they start dragging the bait or hopping the bait. It's an instinctual thing. It's a fishy gene. And when we all fish competitively against each other, a lot of us had equal time on the water. We had, we had equal, a lot of the com equipment was very compatible. Yeah. You know, no one really had a significant advantage there. The only variable that there was that separated the really good anglers from the really great anglers was the ability to adapt to conditions as they change. Mm -hmm. That was the X factor. And when you're fishing redfish tournaments, and not to diminish those tournaments, especially if it's a slot tournament, there is an element of luck in sure, that. Sure, sure there is. How many times I have been in a tournament where we caught, a, we got 11 bites that day, we made nine or 10 of them happen all the way to the net. Um, and you got beat by someone who caught two fish. Yeah, you know it sucks. Yeah, I can't say it any. Other. That just or, sucks. or you or you you get fourth place and the and, and and you basically miss the payout. You know, first place gets a boat, second place gets ten grand, third place gets three thousand, fourth place maybe you made your entry fee That's back, right. fifth place you made nothing. Yeah, you're losing. And money. and the difference between fourth and first is literally uh, three quarters of an ounce. That's right. And that's that's tough. And and honestly, that kind of there were a number of factors that I have already talked about on this podcast that kind of uh, made me not as excited about the red fishing as I, as I once was, but um, that uh, that was one of them. Is that you know you could catch you could catch a twenty eight inch or twenty seven inch fish that would fit in the in the deal and it weighed just a little bit more than than another one right. and and that was the winning fish. Uh, it's still fun. And it was still great, and I learned a tremendous amount in those tournaments, and I would never take that back. Um, but I just found that there was a mental game for sure. And when you look at the bass anglers that are making their living doing way more tournament fishing than we we ever did or ever will do, there is definitely a mental game there of staying sharp and staying focused and being in good enough shape to where you can stand all day long and That's maintain right. your maintain your focus and maintain your positive attitude. Because when you have a negative attitude towards it and you're doing this blind fishing or or power fishing like you're calling it, is all of a sudden all of a sudden you you're not your casting you as accurately, you're not That's casting right. as far, you're not casting. And you're not as, changing things. You're not right. thinking about changing things. You're grinding through it. It's it's almost like that mentality that I'm sitting in front of a slot machine and I'm almost out of, you know, silver dollars here. So <laughs> I just want to lose these next eleven yeah, so I can so go. So I can home. go to sleep. <laughs> that's right. So uh, that's the difference. If you want to remain sharp from the first cast uh, and stay as sharp at cast six hundred and two, your head has to be into it. And for your head to be into it, you've got to be in good physical shape. You have to take everything that you can control you have to control because there's going to be an element of luck in those and those there's deals. no question about it and and then you have to be smart enough to be able to say when 
to move, uh, when to adapt, when to change the tempo, when to change the size. There's sometimes that stuff got so technical on how they would do it. Red fishing has changed so much now with the evolution of tower boats and the ability for these guys to, to bring this, for lack of a better description, a piece of scaffolding on the front of their boats. Yeah. It doesn't appeal to me at all because I feel like all they do is just drive around yeah. and mark zones where fish are and then go back there and fish them with s- smelly stink baits and yeah. just try to depend but, uh, on But them. I mean, it, given, given the opportunity, if we could, if, if, if when we were coming up, you know, 20 years ago, this was the tournament scene, you know, it, it solved, it, it satisfied a need. It, it, it helped. I mean, I'm sure for you, as as for me, I mean, the tournaments taught me a tremendous amount about sponsorship, and the television show would never have happened had oh. had there not been uh, tournament fishing. Because as a fishing guide, we had no tool to that's, sell the sponsor. Right. Right? right, we had no we had no mechanism for the sponsor to gain more exposure to a larger audience than just the two people that are in the boat. And then that learning process of being able to successfully develop a relationship with a company and deliver something that is of value to that company. And then enough so that the next year they do it again and do it again and do it again. That was incredibly valuable. And that would have never happened had it not been for the tournament. So I have a, I have kind of a, it's a not lo- necessarily a love hate because I don't hate the tournaments at all. I I I love the tournaments and but given the choice I probably wouldn't fish them if I didn't have to. And I'm right there with you. The experience was such that we learned a lot about the business. Yeah. We definitely learned a lot about the business. We learned how to handle sponsors. We learned a lot about you had to be responsible. You could you couldn't say some of the things that you'd like to say sometimes. <laughs> you, uh, you, you definitely learned more about the television business, and you learned how 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 fishing really works. There's a lot of connections between companies and brands, and how you had to to present yourself to them, and how you worked the whole thing out. There was a business element to that in a that that definitely made it so that when I made the transition from that to television, it helped me a great deal. Yeah, it helped me a great deal. I think it's it's uh, it's impossible without it. But in all the in all the times that we fished around one another and seen each other at all these shows, I really don't know your story. How does how does C. A. Richardson uh, become C. A. Richardson? Where'd you grow up? Uh, grew up in Saint Petersburg, Florida. I was born in Charleston, actually. Okay, and uh, we moved there when I was small, and when I was uh, probably about a year old. I literally went to primary school, middle school, and high school right there in St. Pete. And during the 70s, there was an energy crisis. There was a huge recession. Uh, there was not much construction going on. St. Petersburg is not the, the boom town that it is today, you know, with swanky restaurants and martini bars. It was, it was known as the home of the newlywed or the nearly dead. It was basically <laughs> you were either a retired person or they were young families that could afford to live there because it was less expensive. And my dad was in construction, and uh, my mother worked as a waitress. We didn't really have much money. Uh, the entertainment for us was to uh, go to the beaches down near the Skyway and do a little wade fishing, go to the piers, uh, fish off the piers. We fished off the catwalks at the Gandhi Bridge, the catwalks at John's Pass, the jetty. And just for me versus my siblings, it, uh, fishing was an escape. It was an escape from you know, the drudgery of the everyday. We didn't get to do as much as the other kids got to do. And I was a big kid, so I did get to play sports. So I, I was a popular kid because I was a good athlete. But for me, fishing was everything. It was my time. I, if I, I buried my fishing rod as a middle schooler at my bus stop in a, in a Brazilian pepper bush so I could bass <laughs> fish before school, then come back after school, get dropped off by the bus, then uncover it, and then bass fish again, then go home. Yeah, so fishing was always an obsession. It was like fishing took my mind off all the other troubles that I thought I was having at that age. You know, where kids now, they have a lot more anxiety issues. You ought to go out fishing is what you ought to do. (laughs) That solves a lot of that. But I stayed after that very, very hard and always, always enjoyed my time in the outdoors. I went to, uh, after, after high school, I went and continued my education as, uh, in technical drawing. Cause I thought I wanted to be a draftsman. 
Wow. I didn't want to. Is that do, at a regular college or like a. It was a technical school. Okay. And I went to St. Peter's Virginia College in addition to that, but I, I really thought I, I have a, I'm a, I letter well, I draw well. I want to do this. And what would that have done? What would you do with that? I was going to be an architect or a okay. draftsman yeah. okay. or some, gotcha. work at, do something creative, feel something, uh, do a job that was rewarding. I worked with uh, with my father doing ceramic tile, and it was it was good money. You yeah. know, for a kid, it was great money because I was tireless. I'd worked every chance I got. Always had cash in my pocket. But when I went to this engineering firm to uh, apply for this job, and I was sitting in there, and there were other people sitting in there for other positions and stuff, and I remember feeling, God, it's cold in here, and it felt. It felt sterile. You know, there were fluorescent <laughs> lights and everything like that. I'm watching people walk around and I'm noticing them. And I'm like, these aren't the people that I hang out with. This isn't, you know, I'm used to listen to to Led Zeppelin and Leonard Skinner on a job site. And, and I'm talking about going fishing later on. These guys, they don't look like they fish at all. I don't, who, <laughs> who in this room do I relate to? And by the time I actually got in to do the interview, I had already decided that I don't think this is for me. It's not for me. When I went home, I decided to continue working. I couldn't really, my dad and I never saw eye to eye. So uh, by the time I was 24 years old, I was working for myself. And shortly after that, I ended up getting married. But I was the guy that would work as long as I could and then fish, always fish on the way home or on the way to work, fishing every weekend, traveling to do local tournaments and things like that. That's all I cared about was fishing, fishing, fishing. Um, and I don't know if, it, if it's appropriate for the podcast, but I found myself in front of a lot of marriage counselors and a lot of Catholic priests saying, <laughs> yeah. um, what's, it seems like fishing's really troubling your marriage. And Brad Paisley had a song back in those days called, I'm going to miss her. Yeah. And that was my, that was my pledge back then. I was like, um, I can't help myself. I mean, this, yeah. I love the, it's an obsession. So how it's did the you, only thing that makes me happy. How did well, you how work am I going to stop? Because you're you're How did I happily work married out? to the same, same no, woman? no 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 okay that was the that was my first wife first wife so I got divorced okay because yeah. <laughs> I was not making her happy right so uh, and we are great friends and she's a great mom she did a great job with my son uh, splitting care of my son my second wife was uh, was a much different personality I was a little bit more mature I'd I'd been on my own for a while she had been on her own for a while. But she loved the outdoors. Yeah. She grew up camping and fishing and riding around in her dad's airboat. Um, she carried a knife in her purse, which was a big plus for me. And I was like, <laughs> Ellie Mae, I like you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ellie Mae. Ellie Mae. So I understood then that for a couple to really be committed to each other, they had to have a lot of common interests. And I didn't understand that as a young person. So Blondie is who I call Jessica now. Blondie and I really had a lot of commonalities, a lot of common interests and ethics and, and values and how we wanted to, you know, she had her child from her previous marriage and I had my son from my previous marriage and, and we just got along and the rest is history. I mean, we've been together now going on, I think 17 years. So we've been together for a long time. How long do you think it, like you, you have a son that's yes. working with you now. How old is he? Cameron's 18. So I also have an 18-year-old and a 21, almost a 21-year-old. Yeah, I have, I, my stepdaughter is 21 and a half. Yeah, so, so if they came home right now and said they were ready to get married, what, would, what advice would you give them? No. <laughs> <laughs> I would say no, don't do it. What, would you, what, what experience do you think? I mean, I, I, I was married later. I did not get married at 21. I got married at 27, I think. So I think those years between 21 and 27 are incredible. I mean, I think about what I did there. I changed my mind a lot. I, uh, uh, you can put those on top yeah, of your head no, if you I want. <laughs> uh, if I changed my mind a whole lot, I was able to really define my career path, what I wanted, what I didn't want, how I wanted to live, where I wanted to live, all of those things. Is that something that you would give advice to your kids right now? I would. Um, my daughter is a very, uh, she's she's more of a common sense person and she's very creative went to culinary academy uh she's at school at ucf now but she's more into having fun 
she's actually a lot more like me in many ways than my my natural son is um, as far as well let's have fun now and worry about this later yeah at that age <laughs> so uh she's into pickup trucks and wearing ropers and going to mud bogs and things like that i'm sure there's a few budweiser's in between yeah. here and there my son, on the other hand, has always been a very driven, competitive, analytical guy. And Cameron, at 18 years old, probably makes more money than a lot of people that are 40 years old that are in a, you know, an average type of job. So I what mean, is he doing to make that money? building websites. He's social media management for small and medium business. He does a lot of small business solutions uh, work like uh, Excel spreadsheets. Where does for he have the background to do all he this? He went to finance academy in high school. Okay. And he's just now starting college. But Cameron always had the ability to communicate better than all the other kids. So you, kids now, they're so locked into their phones and they don't have communication skills mm -hmm. that you and I had to develop. So right. when you talk to a 25-year-old person now, they really seem like they're 18 to me. They don't seem like they're 25. A lot when of we were do. 25, we were 25. But they <laughs> don't seem that way because they're not used to communicating the way that we had to grow up. And to solve something, conflict or whatever, you had to actually talk to somebody, go in a room, get it, get it out. And they don't do that. That's not how it works now. Texting and social media and, and other issues that that they they other ways that they try to solve this and i try to get it through to my kids i'm like listen man texting is no way to ask a girl out on a date texting is no way to to discuss a disagreement texting is 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 convenient it's a way to say i'm here come on down that's right it's not a way to say i'm here come on out to your girlfriend as you're picking her up because you're not going to go to the front door right, to meet right. the parents right like like the I, I find with the 25 year olds i mean i work with some of them and uh and have some people of that age around and i find that it's either a, a hero or a zero that's right like either somebody's parents did a really good job with them and they do have these communication skills equal or better than what we that's, have that's right or they're very reclusive they not and withdrawn. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. that's what and that's what I see a lot. And and kids that are that way, and like Cameron is uh, in our family, Cameron can have a conversation with people that are in their 50s and, and give them some advice that he's learned through Dave Ramsey's podcast mm -hmm. or Gary Vee's podcast about how you should invest your money if you do this much for this long. Because he gets it. He, yeah. he wants to make money. And he does a good job making money. But he understands how to look people in the eye. He makes physical contact with them. He knows the code yeah. to get your confidence. And so many kids don't. They yeah. don't. They've never communicated. So when he's around his friends, they rely on him. They, they look at him as they're their, their big brother. And some of them are a year older than him in the class ahead of him. Well, I think that's a, that's a sure sign that you've done a good job raising him and, and telling, you know, showing him or telling him or demonstrating in some way, shape or form that those kind of communication skills are super important. As a fishing guide, you develop those communication skills and hone them to a razor's edge because out there you're, you, you know, a lot of people think that just a fishing guide just takes somebody fishing, but the people that you're taking fishing generally on an $800 charter are CEOs of companies and, That's right. and people that are expecting a high level of service and as a 22, 25-year-old, having to cater to those kind of people certainly taught me a lot of things. Well, that's very interesting. I want to know how, when, when you know, you're, you're thinking about being a draftsman, you're deciding this is not, this, this career path is not for you. You don't want to live in a sterile environment. How does that transition into professional okay. fishing? Well, the, what happened was I was working for myself. I decided to start my own tile and marble company. So I'm working myself. I'm, I'm, I'm using the, the same skills that I use now to talk to clients on the boat and get their confidence, sell them the job, do the job. I started hiring a guy here and there to, to create more free time for myself so that I can fish. And the whole time I'm doing it, I'm knowing this is just a means to, to get me to fish. <laughs> yeah. That's all it is. I'm, I don't enjoy it nearly as much as... I just, I have to have this much money. It's an existence. And every year I would think, gosh, I need to change something. I really need to change something. So I went and got my captain's license. I guess I was at that point, I was barely in my 30s. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, all I had done is tournament fish and, and, and fish every second, but I'd never 
wanted to really guide anybody. I just guided friends and, and they were along for the ride and whatnot, but I preferred fishing just with me. I just wanted to fish by myself. I wade fished a ton. And the reason for that is no one wanted to stay as long as I did. I wanted mm-hmm. to fish from can to can, and they wanted to fish for four hours and get home. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And I was like, nah, nah, not me. I want to fish the whole time. I want to go somewhere. I want to go to the Everglades. I want to go down to Goodland and fish. So being obsessive like that, I decided I'm going to start I'm going to start a charter business and I'm just going to do it a little bit at a time. And it's just sort of, I'm going to have to have this period of transition where I can wean myself off the money that I'm making in construction and then develop a clientele big enough where I can take the leap will be easy mm-hmm. to make it. And tell, that took a while. Yeah. Tell that me about the moment when you're laying in bed thinking, okay, this charter business has actually become kind of a thing. Like, like I'm not making enough to live off of it, but if I put some focus towards it, I might be able to. And this other business I have right here is suffering because of my lack of... And that's what happened. Yeah, that's so exact, there's, a, there's a moment there's there. A, there's a moment that happens when you're realizing that you're prioritizing the fishing over the client that's expecting you to get something done. Mm-hmm. And that's an uncomfortable position to be in. You know you're going to have to make a choice. What happened during that period of time was these these tours started getting bigger. They were going from the Saltwater Flats Fishing Association and the Governor's Cup and the Triple Challenge that were just here and there that you were doing and some local stuff to now all of a sudden the IF had had started and they were getting ready to partner with the ESPN. And when that stuff started to happen and I realized that that's what I really wanted to do, I really thought I wanted to be a professional tournament angler, that's when I made the move and said, okay, and at that time, financially, I was suffering a little bit because, I, you know, now you're giving up a, an income where you almost had two incomes. Now you're spending time tournament fishing where you can't fish clients as much. And now you're, you're trying to hang on to a couple of odd jobs on the construction side to tr- sort of supplement this all and prop it up. And you, you, you find yourself in a position where you're like, I really shouldn't be doing this. I'm taking chances with my livelihood, my family, a lot of chances here gambling that I'm good enough to do this. And your confidence is, you know, you know how all the personalities were on that tour. We're all alpha personalities. Very we're much all, so. We're all believing like, you know, pull out the sword, gladiator time right now. I mean, we're not going to not cash a check. And fortunately, the partners that I had over the years, I had two or three. We, the common denominator is we always did well enough um, sponsorship-wise and and placing enough to win money. But that was a big risk. That was a really big risk. And then as I grew confidence and sponsors were starting to, to pay me a little bit more money because that economy was pretty good around 2001, 2002, and mm-hmm. before we hit the big recession, I started to realize, I was like, well, this could be a living for me. This could actually work. Just the, just the tournaments. Just the tournaments. And I was just... I. Uh, the television stuff didn't come around until 2006. Um, I, th- I really thought it could work. But boy, five years later, when, when the money started drying up and the tours started shrinking in size, I realized right then I needed to go back to guiding. Mm-hmm. And I was ready to. I was missing a lot of my son's life because he was, he was in travel baseball and I, wasn't a- I was finding myself, okay, I got to go to this tournament, then I'm flying back to do this so I can watch, then I'm flying back to fish again. And I was just wearing myself out. I mean, wearing it out. It wasn't doing him any good. It wasn't doing me any good. I was starting to feel more guilty about it. And it just, by 2009, 2010, I'd, I'd already made the decision that I was cutting the number of tournaments back and I was going to build the guide business back up. My name was big enough. We'd already been doing TV for two or three seasons and that I knew I was capable of making six figures guiding, and that's what I needed to to really just put my my head down and just do it. Mm-hmm. And that worked for me. That worked for and, you, but then then at some point you put more focus on the television and more focus on the personal interactions. How, what what's that moment look like? Uh, well, that mo- that moment came uh, when I in two thousand five I met Jessica in two thousand four two thousand five, and I started I started making more time for everybody. But I realized if we were going to build a life together, I was really going to have to, to, to supersede just my guide income. We were going to have to, to take flats class to another level. But to this day, I still, believe it or not, I still guide 180-something days a year. And people often ask me, why, why are you still guiding? Why aren't you focusing? In fact, 
um, to bring someone into the conversation that we both know well, Jose Wahebi, yeah. went probably a year prior to, to that tragic accident that he had. Uh, we were sitting in Las Vegas at an ICAST uh, at a Raymarine thing, and he told he goes, CA, really like what you do with flats class, but if you're ever going to get this to the next level, you are going to have to let guiding go because you need to focus on it 100% of the time. You just can't do it part-time because you're going to figure that out. I thought, I just can't imagine my life without going to the boat ramp every day. I just can't mm-hmm. imagine. I mean, I've been literally the kid that fished his whole life. How am I going to not want to fish? And I'm just now figuring that out a little bit more. <laughs> every year I figure out I can't, I can't go out there every day. I just don't have the time anymore. I'm, it's, it's pulling me away from it. But my whole identity, and I honestly feel that the credibility that I have with my audience and the people that are fans of Flats Class is the fact that I am an everyday waterman still to this day in my 50s. But that's going to have to, ch- I know it's going to have to change eventually. It just, it just will have to change um, I, my, my wife tells me all the time, she goes, are you going to be happy where you can't leave in the morning and push the boat off the trailer? Cause I think you could probably take, you know, a role with a couple of different brands and do some things and just maybe host a few trips and that would be a good living for you. But it's not so much about the money now. It's about me thinking about how long I can really do it and the feeling I get for being on the water. I mean, for me, it's a visceral, spiritual feeling to be on the water, whether I'm with a client that I've had for the last 12 years, or if it's someone that I just met, um, I met them through another client and they, they want to catch their first tarpon. There's a connection with nature and the person with you. And, and not to make it sound too, too weird, but I mean, it's the smells, it's the sounds, it's, it's, as it happens, the act, and, and you are so hyper-tuned. It's, it's almost in slow motion mm-hmm. when it's happening. You, it's like you know what's going to happen. You watch the fish come. It's just, and it's like, can, I just can't see myself ever wanting to not want to see that every day. It's just, it's really hard. In, in my opinion, I don't think that you have to choose either or. Um, I mean, we're both in similar situations where, you know, the television show has has become a bigger, bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger part of our life. And, and no longer can it just be a television show. Now it has to have all the social media elements right. and everything else. And I don't think that it has to be an either yeah. or. I think that you're going to continue to be able to go out on the boat as much as you want. But but I think that Jose is, is right. And in my experience, that if you really want to take it to the next level and you really want to, in your what I see you doing is you really want to help more and more and more people in order to help more and more and more people. At some point you have to decide that I can go out there for eight hours and help two people, or I can use that eight hours to help hundreds of thousands of people. And and, and that's the way a lot of folks have put it to me. And Joe Simons, who you're going to do a podcast with sometime. He's probably waiting outside that door. (laughs) Um, he, He expresses that to me all the time. You can help them two at a time or you can help them 200 at a time. It's yeah. up to you. And that's the thing I've, I've got to get past. I mean, I, I just enjoy it so much. It's just one of those things that it's hard to explain. And I'm humble. I can't believe how many people walk up because our following is a very organic following. Mm-hmm. I, am not, I am not an enthusiastic television host where I, I did have these false moments of disingenuous enthusiasm where wow red fishing you, you want to spike them in the that, yeah. that's not me i feel like who wants to watch me i'm just an everyday guide and the only thing that really resonates with everyone who tells me that's my favorite television show is the fact that you have a way of delivering a message that is easy under, to understand for us to catch fish it's not condescending. It's not that you're trying to prove anything. It's just you just you have a way about you that gets it done, and they enjoy it. And for me, it's so easy because it's exactly what I do every day. Well, that's the path of least resistance. And in yeah. my experience, I, I feel like you find those paths of least resistance, and if you enjoy them, then that's what you should pursue. You should yeah. put all. You should put your foot on the gas and and take off. And I know you've got a hard stop here. I feel yeah. like I could sit here and talk to you about this and about guiding and about the 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 art of guiding 
versus the art of angling. And I'd like to do that with you on another podcast. Yeah, I really, I'd be happy to do it with you. I, you're one of the good guys in the business. <laughs> well, You've always been looked at as one of the good guys in the business. When people ask me, um, who, are, who are the guys in the business that you have a lot of respect for? I always have a lot of respect for the men that are and the women that are in this business that are doing this business because they put fishing first and not their egos. Mm. And when you look at that list, it's pretty small <laughs> because a lot of us, what we want to do is make a lot of money. We want to, you know, there's guys that do this for, you know, personal fame. They do it for, for whatever reasons they do this job. And for me, the most important thing to me is spending time with family because I know I've, I've squandered a lot of that time and still never lose my love of fishing. And then now use the notoriety that I've earned over all this time to help organizations like Captains for Clean Water mm. and, and to preserve things that need to be protected and, and, and become an influencer of the positive things that need to happen. We need to get more kids fishing outside. We need to get kids more engaged put those phones down, put those tablets down and get them outside to fish because the future of fishing and the future of saving some of these areas are, are going to be left for generations that are younger than both you and I. And they're not as passionate about it as you and I. Some of them are, but that group is very small. And unless we can get the rest of them engaged, you know, there's going to be more and more losses. There's, you know, fishing is not going to be what it is. I never want to have to tell Cameron, that I fished the good old days and you got what was left and your children might not be able to, to do it at all. And I see serious, serious problems here, right here at home in the state that sometimes get swept up under the rug and people just don't want to face it. But I mean, there's a lot of things that have to be done and, and hopefully we can be positive influences. And those guys that are in our business, that are in our business to make the business good, I think are the guys that have to carry the water and do that because there's a lot there's a lot of guys that are just too busy being themselves. Yeah. So. Well, we didn't even get to touch on the captains for clean water and the, the Everglades situation. That's a podcast unto itself. I've done two with Daniel Andrews already. Oh, he did guy. an amazing job of, of explaining the issues and really educating people. I mean, I, you know, as a person that spends a lot of time in the Florida Keys and, and in the state of Florida, you would think that I would have a good understanding of it. I have a good understanding of how it affects me. I don't have a good understanding of the overall problem. And I think that's an issue with, with anglers on the East Coast, with anglers on the West Coast, with anglers in the Florida Keys, with anglers that visit the state of Florida all you know from all over the country. They have an understanding of how this issue is affecting them and whether maybe they have a house on a certain canal. Well, we've never had you know, they see pictures of, of all this nasty water coming into people's canals. Well, it's never happened to them. So they're not really all that concerned about it. And what Daniel did for, for this podcast and this audience, and for me in particular, was really stressing the importance of how each angler, each boater, each person that likes to go to the sandbar, each person that likes to swim in the ocean, each person that likes to go to Key West and party on Duval Street, right. how this all affects each one of us and how the issue is multifaceted. But when when there's too much rain and, and fresh water shooting out the sides of Florida, that does affect the Florida Keys. Maybe not right now. We might not see this this green, nasty water pouring out of buckets, you know, like 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 they are up Fort there. Myers or in, in Stewart. But eventually that is a problem that affects us all. It's another podcast. I mean, we can, I know you got to stop yeah. and I don't want to I don't want to keep you going. It's only because I got a late checkout. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that that is fine. But CA, you told us how um how this all happened for you and how you have developed into the teacher and the guide and the television host that you are. I have a lot of respect for you and honestly the fishing industry is better for it. So I hope that you put your foot on the gas. And take it to another level. I will. And uh, proud to know you as a good friend <laughs> and, and as another good steward of the environment. So well, thanks. We'll do this again. Absolutely. Thank thanks you, a lot, buddy. See ya. That was a great show with C.A. Richardson. Man, it's no wonder that so many people like that guy. Super nice guy, super genuine, super authentic, and really knowledgeable. He really knows his stuff. And more than just knowing his stuff, he does a great job of articulating it articulating the information in a way that 
pretty much anyone of any skill level can understand, digest, and actually go and put to use. So if you, uh, if you want to check out more CA, check out Flats Class. You can find it on Waypoint TV. All the new episodes are up there. All the past episodes are up there. It's a very easy place for, for you to find him. Send me an email, podcast at Saltwater Experience. Let me know what you think about the podcast. You can also tag us, tag me on Instagram, Tom underscore Roland, or our Saltwater Experience account. Search Saltwater Experience on Instagram. That's a great way to get us. The best possible way is the podcast at Saltwater Experience. That comes directly to me, podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. You can hear all past episodes on iTunes by searching Tom Roland Podcast. It's best just to go ahead and subscribe there. Subscribe, and then you get all the new pot, all the new ones come right to you. Or you can go to saltwaterexperience.com forward slash podcast, and you can see all past episodes. Until next week, thank you, and see you later. Four in the morning. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.